Welcome to the Craft of Shadows podcast, based on the novel The Jewel of Nineveh by Dewish Basiti. Discover new content and subscribe to receive updates at craftofshadows.com. Now, on with the show. Chapter 20 Nineveh Arrives The wind had changed direction and a cold air moved down from the north, a sign that summer was turning to autumn. The city had been abuzz with rumours and speculation growing by the day, but this morning, for the observers clustered on the high walls of the city, a dust cloud could be seen approaching from where the winds blew. The people of the desert city knew all too well of the sandstorms that would rage at the changing of seasons or following earthquakes in the surrounding area. There were high walls of churning, turbulent energy, dark at their twisting cores where the cyclone raged. The dust cloud that approached this morning weighed heavily on the hearts of all those who beheld it. Wide and low and pale, the desert stirred up as a wave advanced. Soon it would engulf the skirt of farms and then be at the city walls. A soldier in a high watchtower held a long brass spyglass to his eye, straining to peer within the broiling clouds. Around the tower, a crowd had clustered, men and women clutching hands, whispering comforting words, exchanging stiff half-smiles, their brows lined with worry. I can see the banner. The voice of the man in the tower rang out clearly in the cool morning air, and the crowd fell silent, looking up to him in an ominous hush. Nineveh, Nineveh, the army approaches. The word went out along the watchtowers, and horns were blown to signal the alert. People rushed out from houses and from shops, begging to hear the news from those in the street, then wept when they were told. As the day progressed, hastily prepared wagons streamed between the city and the farms surrounding it. The early harvest, only just the first of the fruits and a little grain, was packed into barrels with every available store of food to be brought within the safety of the city walls as soon as possible. The farmers knew that invaders would fall upon their stocks and devour all they found. Even if the army was defeated and forced back, they would burn the fields and salt the earth out of spite. For if they lost the land, then none should have it. Shepherds hurried their goats towards the city, slant-pupiled, black and white faces, bleating in terror. Alongside them ran long rows of cows, oxen, and camels roped together at their necks, lowing at the chaffing tethers and against the insistent nudging of the stick-wielding cattle drivers. 
By evening, the last of the farmers had abandoned their lots and sought sanctuary behind the city walls. As the great gates were drawn shut, barred and barricaded, teams of oxen drew massive boulders laid there in preparation for such a day into position behind the gates so that if they fell to battering rams or were lost in flames to tar catapults, the attacking army could not drive its war machines through nor send the cavalry to spearhead an attack. The people left outside the city, ragged refugees fleeing other conflicts, wept and pleaded with the guards stationed high above the gates, but received no reply and eventually fled on foot away into the night. The city could not spare any pity for strangers. All thoughts were inward on their own plight. From the vantage point of the high towers, horsemen could be seen fanning out and lighting torches in the fields to guide the position of the infantry and engineers in setting out the camp. The line of torches grew as the night settled into its full darkness, and by midnight the entire city was surrounded. With the first rays of dawn breaking over the dull steel horizon, the hearts sank in the men of the watchtowers as they beheld the awful force that lay arrayed against them. This was not some raiding party, nor a simple show of strength. Nineveh's whole army, 100,000 men, encircled the city. Information, rank upon rank of foot soldiers, regiments of archers and spearmen and cavalry, War machines were being set out by the engineers. Catapults, trebuchets and ballistae, their boulders and bolts were being stacked beside them. They had brought with them war elephants from Indy. Terrible giants with iron-bound tusks and spiked bracelets on their legs. Even one of them could annihilate a detachment of infantry before being brought down. All trade routes were blocked by the army and caravans of merchants that approached were sent away. The army of Nineveh took orderly control of the farms. There was no wanton pillage, but the soldiers must eat. The city was under siege and would need to survive on its stores and meagre water springs alone. The men in the watchtowers knew the winter would be hard and lean, but the worst was to come. Even without military action, diseases would come into the cloistered city, feasting on their misery, taking the young and old alike. A horn blared from the enemy camp, a perfect circle formed at the range of a mile from the city walls. Directly facing the great north gate stood the general's camp, a palatial red and white striped tent, and the two cities, one ancient and the other newly born, 
faced each other for war. A party appeared from the besieging army and slowly approached the entrance to the city. At the centre of the group was a giant black elephant, its body scarred and pitted, its tusks black with the blood of the dead, and bearing an armoured palaquin on its back. Surrounding the elephant, four white horses, four eagle-feathered, plumed commanders astride them, the escort for the general of Nineveh. The lead commander bore aloft a white standard, a signal for truce, so that they might parley. They stopped outside the gate and a fanfare came from the horn. The voice that came from the palaquin atop the war elephant was deep and strong and it echoed off the great north gate. City of Ur, the army of Nineveh stands before you and know that our wrath is great. We answer the insult and injustice that you hurl at us with a final offer to end this generation's old conflict. Return the jewel of Nineveh to us and we will leave, never to return. The words hung in the still air. A glimmer of hope rose in the hearts of all who heard them. Also, know that I am General Musa. I have crushed a hundred cities to dust in the defence of my home. If we are not obeyed, then the army of Nineveh will fall upon you. We will slay every man, woman and child in the city. Then we will burn it to the ground and let the sands of the western desert take it. You have one day to respond. The horn rent the air a third time and the general's party returned to their camp to wait the city's response. Hatra ran through the warren of tunnels and service ducts that made up the labyrinth of the city's sewers, the smell growing more noxious with every step. Daylight glimmered at the end and as she approached the roar of water grew until it became a deafening wall of noise. The sewers opened above the river and gushed over the edge, protected by a semicircular arch few feet high, barred and with a narrow path either side of the torrent of effluent. She pried loose a brick at the base of one of the bars, brushing some sand aside before twisting the rod out of its fitting. She squeezed through the gap and climbed down to the ground, making sure to stay out of sight of the watchtowers, hiding behind bushes and trees until she reached the farms. She ran through the fields to the general's camp. Halt! Who are you to approach General Musa, a gruff soldier, formal and functional? Tell the good general that his spy has arrived. I've come to make my report. The soldier raised an eyebrow and eyed the slim, attractive woman up and down. Wait here. He tilted his head toward her 
and one of his comrades marched over and pointed a spear at her. I'll check up on your story. The soldier marched stiff-legged up to the general's tent, a massive construction of ropes and poles and awnings trimmed with gold tassels. There were smaller tents in neat rows, dwarfed by the giant beside them. The general had a fondness for war machines and had several of each class placed in groups either side of his tent. A sighting platform with a telescope mounted to a tilting rangefinder was placed directly in front of the general's tent, equidistant between the two groups of catapults and ballistae. A deep voice boomed inside the giant tent, and a soldier emerged, red-faced and sweating, as he ran back to Hatra. The general will see you immediately. Thank you. Please accept my apologies for the delay. This way, please. Thank you. The soldier led Hatra up to the tent and pulled aside a heavy flap. The general's tent was even grander inside than its imposing exterior suggested. The red and white canvas now looked like finely painted walls, for the general had maps and diagrams hung from them, as other men would hang works of art. A broad round table was placed in the centre of the room, and an epic-scaled model of the city and its surrounding lands was built in the middle, a wooden carving of God's finger rising three feet tall in the centre, the details of the Sultan's palace carved in the top. The bull-necked man facing her had a bushy but well-trimmed beard, almost all turned to grey, and that matched his bristling eyebrows. Hatra! His nostrils flared as he spoke, and thick, knotted tendons in a neck quivered as he turned his head. He wrapped his fist on his gold-plated breastplate, a gong of welcome, then squeezed her shoulder so hard she winced. Report at once. I've heard worrying rumours and conflicting information, so I'll give you a chance to tell your side of things first, for old time's sake. Hatra bowed her head. My thanks, General. I do not have all the information, but a worrying picture is beginning to emerge. She spoke quickly and precisely, and General Musa scratched his ear as he listened to her tale. When she had finished, he stared into space for a minute before replying. What you tell me is directly opposed to information I have been receiving from a normally reliable source. My concern here is that you've turned court and now work against Nineveh. I learned that it was one of your assassins that killed our ambassador, a man who had displayed nearly infinite patience trying to bring some kind of accord between our cities. Hatra raised her chin and glared at the general, and her voice was cold and steady. Let me make one thing completely clear, something I was very clear about when we first formed um, 
our relationship. I do not work for Nineveh. I am not a spy of Nineveh. My loyalties lie only with the people of Ur. If the Sultan of Ur acts against the good of his own people, and if straight dealing with honest people in Nineveh can reduce or stop their pain, then I will do that. General Musa raised placating hands. His booming voice softened to a rumble. Hatra, my words were poorly chosen. Your loyalty to Ur is the very reason I decided to trust you all these years ago. You and I are very similar people. We value honour and we love our homes. Hatta breathed deeply, cooling her temper. A contract I understood to be anonymous was placed with our order and a new member entrusted with its commission. Subsequent to the assassination, our new member discovered the target was indeed your ambassador and rightly suspected the hand of someone in the upper city. What have you discovered about your anonymous client? Hatra explained all that had come to pass and General Musa paced about the tent, his frown deepening as the tale unfolded. He grimaced. Diabolical. Truly, this is a man for whom any life is a cheap price to increase his power. Hatra, you have done well to uncover this plot, but none of it provides a different way for events to unfold. Your city has a devious vizier and a weak sultan. Neither deserves a jewel, and Nineveh's insult has not been avenged. It is all I can do to hold back the wrath of my own people by bringing the jewel home. Then it is possible, if nothing else transpires between our countries, that the tenuous peace will hold. But it is all we have to dream for now. Tell me, Hatra. Do you think the Sultan will release the jewel, or will the Grand Vizier sue for war to advance his scheme? Atra frowned and shook her head. The Sultan has no power. All goes by the word of the Vizier. General Musa slammed his fist into the table, scattering the models of soldiers and horsemen. His commanders jumped back in alarm. Then we are thrust into the maw of the bloody dogs of war. His beard bristled and his cheeks flushed. Hatra took General Musa's thickly cabled arm and stroked it. There is one last chance to end things, but it lies not in your power or in mine. The general's eyebrows scrunched over his narrowed eyes. You would rest our fates, the lives of all the people of your city, on this itinerant thief? Hatra held Manu's face in her mind, his capricious temper and joviality, the casual disregard for authority or risk. Yet the deep well of anger 
simmering beneath his skin. I would. Heaven help me if I'm wrong. General Musa stared down at her, watching the conflict on her face. Will he carry out Ashan's orders? Hatra finally smiled. I think the stranger is tired of being a plaything and will cut their relationship short. General Musa walked to an iron chest, returned with a small sack and tipped it out over the table. Gems of all colours and sizes coruscated a rainbow halo amongst the models of war machines. These are our terms, Hatra. I speak for the Caliph of Nineveh in these matters. The survival of your people depends upon it. Bring me the jewel and the Grand Vizier's head and my army will leave, considering the honour of Nineveh avenged. Your assassin shall receive this reward, enough to buy the loyalty of any man, I feel. She bowed. Trust me in this as I trust the stranger. One of the commanders escorted her from the tent, and by stealth they made it back to the sewage outflow and scaled her rope back into the sewers. She donned her disguise as the king of the thieves and made her way back to the thieves' den, her brow furrowed with worry beneath the mask of the screaming man. It finally came to this, she thought. All our fates rest on a stranger who came to us as a refugee just a few days ago. He could save us, or abandon us, or strike us down and seize power himself. Until the gong of the hour sounds, I do not truly know which one he will choose. Manu reclined on the carpets in Vashir's living quarters, propped up on one elbow and dragging a whetstone along the edge of his knife. He heard a fainter grinding noise as the secret cellar door was opened and he looked up at Hatra's approach. Where do you go when you disappear like that? Manu, we must talk. He lolled his head back and moaned. Can't you think of anything better to do, seeing as we are alone? She cuffed him on the back of the head and narrowed her eyes in mock indignation. But the pursing of her lips and the flush in her neck said otherwise. Pay attention. This is very important. He sighed theatrically and sheathed his knife. All right, what is this about? I've been to see General Musa. The leader of the Nineveh army? How did you manage that? And why did he admit you? Because at times, when it suits me, I provide him with a little information. Manu's eyebrows shot up. You're a spy? I took you at your word when you made all those speeches about protecting the people. Hatra crossed her arms in front of her chest. I am loyal to the city, and the needs of the people are always first in my mind. 
Nineveh and Ur have long warred, and it has strengthened neither nation. Manu grinned. And how much do you get paid for this information sharing? Hatra knelt beside him and placed a hand on his sleeve. Manu's grin faded. The closeness of her warm body disquieted him. Damn. Why do you let her influence you? She stroked his arm and rested her chin on his shoulder. If you can smuggle the jewel out some way and get her to General Musa's camp, you will save thousands of lives, maybe tens of thousands. I know that may not be enough motivation, so the general has offered a sack of gems, a queen's ransom, for the return of the jewel. Interesting. I thought you'd think so. Manu scratched his head. So many different paths, but each choice leading down, only one. Life used to be so simple. Get hungry, steal something. See a woman, give her a sparkly trinket. He sighed. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Craft of Shadows podcast. More details at craftofshadows.com. Copyright 2020, Dirush Basiti and Victor Publishing. Title music by Turku, Nomads of the Silk Road, at turkumusic.com.